Hello, 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 and welcome to season four of So Curious, a podcast presented by the Franklin Institute, a science museum in Philadelphia focused on celebrating human sciences and technologies. In this season, we are gassed up. We're geeked. (laughs) We're excited. We're very excited because we're going to be exploring all the science and technology behind music, how our brains understand music, how people interact with music, and so much more. But before we get into all that, we should probably introduce ourselves. So, like I said, I'm Kirsten Michelle Sills. I am Philadelphia's token terminally ill stand-up comic. I'm born and raised in the city of brotherly love. I have cystic fibrosis, and because of that, I work as an advocate for the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. And I've also been doing stand-up comedy professionally for eight years, and I split my time between telling jokes and yelling go birds unprompted, any chance I get. (laughs) And I'm the Boa Bay. I'm a Philadelphia-based hip-hop artist. To prove it, here's a little clip. Yeah, I'm still out west. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm about to get a check. Yeah, I'm back at it again. I am also a creative collaborator and a civic leader. I do all things community. I just love my city and I love people and I love science too. So I can't wait to get into this season. All right, Bay. I already know you have a musical background because you are um, a musician. My musical background is not as strong as yours, but I did study musical theater in college, so that's something. Yeah, I was going to push back. You're the musician. No, come hey, on. No, you are. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's so interesting, too, is I feel like I've had a very similar experience where I was just kind of going through life, and I didn't really take stock fully of how much music was present, is present. So, no, I'm right there with you. I didn't know, like, you know, music was ingrained in me. So let's get into it. This first episode of this season, season four, we are going to be looking into the science behind music taste. Like, why do we like the music that we like? First, we'll be chatting with Dr. Psyche Louie to learn why our brains like music. Ooh, and then we're going to talk with psychology researcher Dr. David Greenberg about how our personalities shape our music taste. And to round out this inaugural episode of season four, We'll be sitting down with audio engineer turned neuroscientist Dr. Susan Rogers about how elements of recorded music impact how we personally respond to it. All right. Well, then, Dr. Psyche Louie, welcome to the So Curious podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do? My name is Psyche Louie. I am an associate professor of music and creative practice at Northeastern University, where I direct a lab called the MIND Lab, where MIND stands for Music, Imaging, and Neural Dynamics. So I do research in music and the brain, thinking about why we have music, how does music tickle the brain, and how we can use that for greater good. Tickle the brain. I like that. I like that imagery. And are you yourself a musician? And if so, can we hear a little snippet? Oh, my goodness. Well, you're finding me on a fun day. I I do play musical instruments. Uh, My main instrument is the violin. But I've recently picked up some mandolin. um, And we are actually just rehearsing before uh, I came here. Um, (laughs) 
maybe that's all I got. <laughs> a little bit of mandolin, a little bit of violin. I shouldn't um, spend the whole time no, this playing is wonderful. different tunes because I, I think that's that's how I relax. <laughs> you know, why do our brains like music? Is there some sort of dopamine response? Tell us about that. Why does our brain like music? Well, there's so many questions um, that surround that question. I mean, so at the core of it, I think music plays with our expectations and our predictions. So there are these long-term expectations that we've learned and built up just by virtue of being in our environments and being in the culture. Uh, we also have kind of one-time predictions that are much more specific. We might call those veridical expectations. So if I, for example, if I told you I have a guitar pick in my pocket right now, right? you might not have thought about that before, but now you know what I have in my pocket. Right? So that's a one-time <laughs> prediction. right? So much of why we love music, I think, is because music taps into these different kinds of predictions. So, right? so that gives you certain memories of maybe the last time you've heard that piece. And now if I change that... Right. So that suddenly gives you a different set of expectations. So much of why we love music is because music taps into these different kinds of predictions. I want to like keep the conversation going and ask you, why do we sometimes get chills when we hear music we particularly like? What is that response? I would imagine it's a pleasurable response when people get the chills from a song. Yeah, it's definitely a pleasurable response, but it's also a little bit unexpected. Chills are a grab bag of physiological descriptions that we have for those musical moments that change our perception and our cognition. We can record heart rate, for example, and we can record breathing and skin conductance, like how sweaty you are. And we can see that if there are certain pieces of music that gives you a chill, those specific moments that give you a chill, you're actually sweatier and your heart is actually beating faster. And that's been also tied to the dopaminergic response. So earlier you were asking, oh, is it about dopamine? Mm. Uh, and dopamine, of course, is a neurotransmitter that's a brain chemical that is really the currency of the reward system, right? So we know that uh, the central nervous system of not just humans, but many other animals has evolved to want to seek out food, right? And has evolved to you know seek out ways to procreate, right? So that, that's a very kind of evolutionarily hardwired biological thing. But then what humans can do over and above that is we're learning these associations between these biological hardwired things and something that's a bit more abstract, right? So if you go back to the old findings of like Pavlov's dogs, where like you have a dog that's like hearing a bell and then given some meat powder. And so meat powder, of course, makes the dog salivate. Mm. And so over time, even if there's no meat powder, if it hears just a bell, it will learn to salivate. So there's this automatic conditioning that's going on. And so music seems to be somewhere between the, the bell and the meat powder, right? Mm. So it's, uh, it's a series of learned associations that might at some point be tied to these evolutionary advantages. And so maybe part of that is about the way music taps into movement, right? it makes us want to move. So uh, by having moved together to music and to rhythm in music over time, um, people might have learned to associate music with 
social predictions. And so then music is a way to bring us together. And so at a core level, um, part of what, for example, gives me chills is like when I'm hearing some piece of music really go towards a goal and then it exceeds that goal. So for example, like in house music, we can have like a piece of music that's going faster and faster and faster and then suddenly it just stops. And then there's a music happening again, right? So that that moment, that beat drop moment uh, is very much tied to a surge of dopamine. That's the dopamine rush that is in music. You know, and then in classical music, you also get these chord progressions. So you talk about like, oh, one, four, five chord progressions. That's kind of very standard chord progressions. But sometimes you might throw a different chord in there. Maybe there's like a flat six and suddenly it's like, ooh, like it's a little bit unexpected. It's a little bit cooler than what you would expect. So the unexpectedness, um, so in music theory, it's called appoggiaturas. And it turns out that a lot of folks, when they hear those unexpected appoggiaturas, they report feeling like they want to cry. Right? So mm. again, it's it's about playing into expectations. Wow. So I'm thinking about the fact that music is universal, of course, but are there people who just do not get any enjoyment from listening to music? Yeah, so specific musical anhedonia, that's the term that's been coined for people who, you know, they're not generally depressed, right? They love good food. They love a nice back rub. They love <laughs> long walks on the beach. But yet music just doesn't do it for them. And we've found a few cases like that. And that's been linked to differences in the way the auditory areas in the brain are connected to the reward areas in the brain. So given that the reward areas that are rich in dopamine are how we're learning from the acoustic signal of music to form these expectations and to motivate all sorts of behavior, it makes sense that the auditory areas being less connected to the reward centers are what give rise to the lack of music rewards. So let me ask about genres like pop. You know, some people say that pop is easier for people to get into than, let's say, freeform jazz or traditional music and other cultures. Do things like exposure... And family affect how we respond to different types of music. Yeah, for sure. I would say that your past experiences play a huge role in how you respond to music, right? So if you grew up in a classical background, right, chances are you've had more exposure to that in the past. And then, of course, like this interacts non-linearly with age, right? So we also know that the whole reward system is developing as we grow up. There are certain time windows where there are sensitive periods of development of our reward system. So if you look at you know, someone who's lived for, let's say, 70 years, and you ask them, hey, what are the pieces of music that you love the most? Chances are they'll mention music from their adolescence. So there's this golden age or this reminiscence bump when you're especially receptive, music that you find in that age range you find to be especially rewarding and memorable to listen to. What topics are you uh, researching now that you're most excited about? Well, I like to find out what creativity is and how we can measure that. So we have a, a new musical scale that's based on mathematical ratios that are different from all existing scales in the world. 
And we're trying to come up with a way to let people jam and let people compose tunes in that way. And then we also want to record brain potentials while people are listening to creative tunes in this new musical system and use that as a way to find out how the brain enables creativity. And we're also, on the other hand, looking at nursing home. I'm going to, uh, to different nursing homes and designing music-based interventions that are a little bit novel um, ways to get at brain rhythms that might be disrupted in people with Alzheimer's disease. So yeah, so two kind of arms of the work, some that's more kind of exploratory and some that's more novel interventions for people who need it the most. Yeah, that's incredible. I know, right? <laughs> Whoa. I know. Well, this is all so much to look forward to. You're doing such great work um, yeah, in what you do with MindLab and with Northeastern. And thank you so much for taking the time to chat with Bay and I. Thank you for having me. Great to talk to you. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Louie. We asked to hear a sample, but we definitely were not expecting a live performance. Of course, that's what this is all about. No, we were not. But now that we understand why our brains like music in general, um, I say let's learn about how our personalities shape what specific music we listen to. And Dr. Greenberg is the man for that. So, Dr. Greenberg, thank you so much for joining us on the So Curious podcast. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me on. Please introduce yourself and what you do. I'm a psychologist and a neuroscientist, and I study the impact of music on the brain and society. And are you yourself a musician? Could we hear a clip? I consider myself first and foremost a musician. That's how I got to wanting to understand how music impacts the brain and impacts the mind and impacts people. I grew up mainly studying and learning jazz improvisation. John Coltrane was my main inspiration and hero. There's some clips of a concert I did a couple years ago, specifically for Coltrane, who spent some years in Philadelphia. Mm. Yes, he did. Nice. We want to talk about your research. A lot of your work deals with what are called the big five personality traits. Can you explain what those big five are? The big five personality traits is the most contemporary and up-to-date model of how we understand who we are. So whenever we're dealing with the topic of personality, we're really asking the question of who are we, what motivates us. The big five, it understands personality in terms of five dimensions. So the five traits are openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And how does someone big five score affect their musical taste? So I was a senior scientific consultant for Spotify and advisor there for about four years. And I was helping lead a team to look at how people's Spotify playlists and histories were able to predict their big five personality traits. And we found that overall, we could actually make interesting predictions about people's traits. For example, people who are open to experience have very wide ranging preferences for a variety of genres. 
Beyond that, the most recent publication that we've had, we've looked at hundreds of thousands of people across 50 different countries, and we find that actually the links between personality traits and musical preferences are consistent across countries. So an extrovert wow. in Thailand or in India is preferring music that is energetic and, and rhythmic, as well as people in Brazil who will also prefer music that is also energetic and rhythmic, even though they don't speak the same language and so forth. So we're seeing that across countries, people are using music as a way to express their own internal traits. And can I ask, like, when you saw the results, were you surprised? There's been about 20 years of research in this area before we conducted this study, which it's definitely one of it might be the largest on the topic to date. And so we had a lot of different hypotheses that we had to go on. And certain things made sense. For example, people who are high on openness to experience are going to prefer more jazz and classical music and music that has more complexity to it. People who are agreeable are going to tend to like more mellow, sensual, romantic music. But one of the things that was surprising was that people who score high on the trait neuroticism, which is people who have a tendency towards stress and anxiety, preferred music that was more intense. So music from heavy metal genres and punk and so forth. Mm. And now that's on average. Why that was surprising was because we thought that it could also go the other way, meaning that people who have a certain degree of stress would then be seeking and preferring music that might be more calming, like mellow music, in order to decrease their stress. Whereas on average, what we were finding is that people are seeking music that reflects the stress and also potentially even reinforces it. So that's an interesting area that was a surprise and an area that we want to be researching more because neuroticism is a predictor of many different types of mental health conditions. And the more we understand it, the better we can then use music to treat those conditions. And there are likely subsets of people who score higher neuroticism that may use music, for example, as catharsis in different ways. And so we have to really understand a, a larger picture of it, because, again, at the end of the day, the big five is a more of the starting point of personality. It's the basic tendencies that we have, but it's not the end of the story. So it's really for us in that respect, a starting point. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you, David, like, what kind of music do you like? I mean, I know that's probably a reductive question because you work in this field, but. <laughs> it's a great question. I sing to my daughter. So that's a lot of the music that Aww. goes on in my life these days. But I grew up with jazz. And when I learned how to improvise as a musician, that was a, what I would say, like an opening or a new access point in terms of just consciousness to play spontaneously mm. with other people. And that really then grew into discovering music in a variety of other areas. And I, I study a lot of now what I would consider music that has a spiritual undertone to it. Like when we look at the music of John Coltrane, for example, his music not only was about political and social issues, but also about spirituality. So he had a deep religious experience. And so when I first began to study Coltrane's music, that was a beginning of understanding and trying to explore different aspects of spirituality and music. And so that's from a variety of different religions and faiths and so forth and, and how music evokes awe, how music evokes wonder. And that then crosses over with the science part of me as well as the musician. Awesome. Mm. Awesome. And circling back to improvisational jazz, how does that correlate to the big five? What direct lines can you draw there? 
And I want to know the same about religious music, like you said. Yeah. Right. So I'll start with the last one. Preferences for religious music in the U.S. are very interesting, particularly because of the Bible Belt and so forth. So mm-hmm. in the South, people scoring high on religiosity, but then also there's such a connection with mm-hmm. country music in those areas. So you actually see this correlation, but then it's a prime example of correlation doesn't imply causation. So we don't mm-hmm. necessarily know that that's the true relationship. We still need to unpack that more. But in general, then when we look at spirituality, which is different from religiosity or religious affiliation, that has strong links to openness to experience. And so people who score high on openness tend to also seek different spiritual aspects within music. People who are also high on trait spirituality then will tend to listen to music that is outside the box, can be more avant-garde. And interestingly, just in some of our own research, not yet published, we will publish it soon, that music seems to provide a greater window into people's traits spirituality than the big five personality traits does. Mm. In fact, if someone is reacting to music, if you both provided your playlist, then that would give me a better sense of, of your spirituality. And it would give machine learning algorithms a better sense of your spirituality than filling out a personality trait inventory. Wow. <laughs> That's interesting. We'll have to yeah. circle back and send you some playlists. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, the jazz part of it is also like oh, openness yeah, yeah. to experience. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I so. was going to say, I imagine it would be, right, openness with improvisational. Right. But it goes beyond genre. Our research basically we stopped 10 years ago looking at people's genres that they like and more looked at the underlying qualities of the attributes because within jazz alone, you have avant-garde, you have Sun Ra and so forth. And then on the other end, you have Kenny G or Chris mm-hmm. Boti in it, you smooth jazz. So people who like different types of jazz music have different personality traits. Those who like the really avant-garde are really open, also can tend to be extroverted. Those who like more of the smooth jazz on the other extreme, for example, are typically more agreeable um, and more conscientious. What other factors around personality have been found to affect music taste kind of beyond the framework of uh, the big five? There's other models of personality that we've looked at, for example, what's called the empathizing or systemizing framework of understanding. So if someone's very high on systemizing, they tend to prefer music that has more intense, complex and cerebral aspects and features to the music. And then that actually leads us to understanding autism because people who are autistic tend to score high on systemizing. And so Mm. in some of our initial research, we see the connections between musical preferences and systemizing and autism. And then there's other aspects which are interesting in terms of what I mentioned before, mental health. So when we look at personality, like I mentioned before, Big Five is just a starting point, but what defines us as who we are is also our narratives, our stories, how we adapt to certain situations. And so when we look at the themes that people are drawn to in music, for example, we see things like lyrics that communicate being tentative or not, that mm. those have certain associations with different types of mental health conditions. And um, same thing about body image and violence and so forth. So the themes in music also can point us to different qualities in the person that are beyond just about the big five basic tendencies. Are the listeners aware of their own taste of the patterns that they have in terms of choosing songs or Mm -hmm. what they might be leaning towards? I think people have a certain understanding intuitively. I think that they know what works for them and what doesn't. 
sometimes it could take people a long time to find that song. If, you know, someone just had a breakup and they really need something that's cathartic, it could take days, if not months, to really find that one song at the right time, at the right moment that Mm. then opens up that surge of emotion that they need in terms of healing or a cathartic experience. And so I think that with technology, there's ways now to speed that up. Underneath it, there's certain things that any individual, any listener just can't have or understand. For example, you take one song and you might describe it in five or 10 characteristics, but really there's hundreds and thousands of different configurations of song patterns. Mm. So once you grasp that, that's where then like AI and machine learning is really going to be advancing us in the next decade to then be able to show us a new way that we can understand and use music to help us and to help each other. Amazing. So when you meet someone you've never spoken to before right then and they tell you their favorite song, are you able to like infer what you think their personality might be like? Yeah. So there's, of course, outliers, but Mm -hmm. there's an incredible amount that if someone tells you about the music that they like, if it's just one song or a group Mm. of songs, you can infer certain aspects about their personality traits. I'll end on an example, which is that I went for a music lesson. I've been trying to work on voice. My initial instrument is saxophone. And the first thing we did in the lesson is we just freely improvised for the first maybe 20 minutes. And I never really spoken with him before. So we didn't know each other personally, but I knew of him. And then the first words he said to me were, wow, you've lived an interesting but long life, um, wow. which was a very interesting comment. But what he was communicating to me was like, hey, I, I kind of like see where you're at, where you've been, and I can see what you've been expressing through the music because of the emotional aspects of it and the psychological aspects that I was signaling either consciously or unconsciously through the music. What did you say back? Wow. Yeah. (laughs) What did you say back? Oh, shucks. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't remember what I I said back, uh, but I think it was just kind of like an understanding. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Greenberg, for coming on to hang out with us. And now to close out, we are joined by Dr. Susan Rogers to share with us more about how music taste is formed. Could you introduce yourself and what it is you do? Well, I'm a semi-retired professor. In my former life, years ago, I was a record maker, an engineer, and a record producer. And then I left to uh, go to academia, earn a PhD in music perception and cognition. And for the last 15 years, I've been teaching both record production and psychoacoustics at Berklee College of Music in Boston. Oh, psychoacoustics. I can't wait to get into that. (laughs) But you have done some amazing things. Can you talk about some of those amazing things a little bit? Yeah, I started my career in Southern California, where I was born and raised. And uh, I started in 1978. Uh, There weren't that many women, and there aren't now. Mm -hmm. As engineers, you wouldn't see many women record producers. I didn't know of any. But uh, I had more modest ambitions. I just wanted to be in the game. So I started my career as an audio tech. What an audio tech would do and still does is uh, repair the equipment, the tape machines and the console. And I was working as a technician in Hollywood when my favorite artist in the world, who happened to be Prince, put out the word in the grapevine that he was looking for a technician to come and join him full time in Minnesota. So I joined him and um did uh, Purple Rain, Around the World in a Day, the Parade album, uh, Sign of the Times, and then all the other stuff we did during that period, which was Sheila E. and The Time and Vanity Six and all that stuff. 
when I finished with him, you know, we had a good run, but uh, yeah, you it was did. very, very intense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. It was very, very intense. So uh, we parted ways amicably. And then I began my career as an independent uh, engineer and mixer and record producer. Had big success in uh, the late 90s with Bare Naked Ladies. By big success, I mean a hit record as a record producer. And that's mm. back in the days, and it's still the days today, but you'd get... Um, You'd get a big royalty check if you had points on a record, as producers did. So you'd get that big royalty check, and then six months later, you'd get another one. (laughs) (laughs) Those were the glory days. But with that money, I was able to leave the music business and uh, enter academia and pursue the sciences, which I love tremendously, and uh, get my Ph.D., this is also amazing. Um, but we brought you on specifically because we want to talk about your work around music taste. So you wrote a book called This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. I would just love to hear more about this from you. Yeah, these are all based on things that I learned in grad school studying music perception and cognition. And I threw in there for good measure something that we knew about in the recording studio. When we listen to a given record, there are at least seven different dimensions on that record that can, independently of the others, give us a little treat. And by treat, I mean a little release of dopamine. So let's imagine that you're listening to a record for the very first time. You've never heard it before. Someone's playing it for you. And what your brain is going to do is perform a scan of these seven dimensions. And what you're seeking is your personalized treats, a match between that dimension and your listener profile. Now, all you need to do when you're scanning that record is find one treat. I mean, it's great if you can find two or three, but if you find (laughs) one, that can be enough to make you go, yeah, yeah, I'm into it. I I like it. It's good. I love it. I think we want to just go a little bit more into these dimensions that you talk about, these seven ones, like, you know, how they are practically applied, like how different Mm -hmm. people respond to them and how do we build our own listener profiles? Yes. So I love the saying from the uh, biologist Darcy Thompson. He said, everything is the way it is because it got that way. Mm. So starting from Even before you're born, your listener profile is starting to form because when you're floating around in there in the womb, you can hear mom's voice. In the third trimester, you can hear dad's voice too. So you're, you're hearing the melodies of speech in your environment. After you get born, you begin learning, here's how they use their voices when they're trying to warn me, don't touch that, when they're trying to reprimand me. I told you not to touch that when they're trying to calm me down, when they're trying to amp me up and get me to wake up. (laughs) They use their voices differently, different dynamics, different melodies. So we begin learning the emotions that underlie melody and loudness changes and tempo changes and things like that. So your listener profile is forming throughout your life It's getting stronger every time you have a positive musical experience. Mm. 
So of these seven dimensions that I'm describing in the book, four of them are musical and three of them are aesthetic. And they are dimensions that apply to film and books and television and dance and all art forms. So of the musical dimensions, it's the familiar ones. It's rhythm, lyrics, melody, and timbre. Timbre refers to sound itself. You can take a given song and you can notate it on a score. Here's what its rhythm is. Here's what its tempo is, its time signature. Here's its melody. Here's its lyrics. But you could play that record on a great variety of different instruments. Mm. We tend to have preferences uh, for, for guitar sounds and drum sounds and keyboard sounds. And mm. We have our preferences for the timbres that we like. Rhythm is associated with how your body likes to move. So I'd like you guys to think about being at a party, a variety of music is playing. Let's say, let's say it's some intergenerational thing like a wedding. So there's people of different ages and mm -hmm. generations there. So they're going to play a variety of music. What song or record would they play that would get your body out on that dance floor? And when they did, how would you move? Would you do that rock thing, you know, where you go up and down like on a pogo stick? Or if it's maybe you like a Latin groove and you like mm. something with more syncopation and you'll go side to side where your shoulders go one direction, your hips go the other. So I'd be out on that floor if I heard a groove that facilitated the dance I like to do. Rhythm is associated with our bodies. Melody is associated with uh, the emotions that we pick up on from singing and from melodic instruments. Some listeners are deeply into it, so much so that they can get full enjoyment from records that are sung in a language that they don't speak. So a lot of people say, oh, I never listen to the words, believe them when they say that. The lyrics are processed over here, left temporal lobe for most of us, where we process speech melodies on the right-hand side. So many of us will have deep passion for records sung in a language we don't speak. No, that's so true. That's so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yes, definitely true of me. Yeah. And what I'm responding to is the passion in the vocals and in, in the melody, the intonation of the, of the vocal performance, not the information or the words. Those are the four musical dimensions. Then our aesthetic dimensions Authenticity refers to where you perceive those performances to be coming from. Our preferences on that dimension might be for technical perfection. Mm. You might want to be listening to, if we're going to focus in on vocalists, you might want to listen to an Ella Fitzgerald or a Frank Sinatra, someone who was technically perfect. Mm. Or you may like your performance gestures to come from the heart or from the belly button or from the hips. Mm. For me, I love my Ella Fitzgerald, but boy, do I love Howlin' Wolf. Boy, oh, do yeah. I love that blues music, you know, that just comes from the gut and from the belly button. I listen for that. I'll take a bad performance from the gut over a technically perfect but timid performance from the neck out. Mm. So that's authenticity. Realism versus abstraction has something to do with the kind of visualization that you most enjoy when you're listening to your favorite music. When you're listening to your favorite music, the kind of music that you love the most, what do you see in your mind's eye? Now, some people don't see anything. Some people see abstract shapes and colors. Some people see uh, 
nature sees, the beach or the mountains or a meadow or something, the most common visualization is you see scenes from your life, the people and places and events that were important to your life when you hear this, this music. For other people, they visualize a story from the lyrics. Uh, many of us picture ourselves playing or singing, and many of us picture the artist, either maybe in concert or, uh, in my case, in the recording studio. The reason it affects our sweet spot on the dimension of realism versus abstraction is some records lend themselves to the kind of visualization that you like best, and other records don't. And the very last dimension is one that's uh, the easiest one of all to explain, novelty versus familiarity. Some of us, and, and I'm one of them, prefer a higher degree of innovation and experimentation than what you hear on the pop charts. Other folks like music in classic styles, your classic reggae or disco or bebop jazz or, or Bruce Springsteen, classic rock because when they select a new record, they want that technical perfection. They're not listening for innovation. We've all got sweet spots on these seven dimensions, and that's collectively our listener profile, which is unique to all of us. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate it, Dr. Susan Rogers. This was such a pleasure. Awesome. Thank you so much. Loved talking with you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Dr. Susan Rogers. That was, in a word, dope. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, please be sure to join us next week when we are going to get to the bottom of the grand question, the question everybody wants to know, why do humans even have music? So it's a fundamental human property. How and why it evolved is hard to discern from the fossil record, right? Because music doesn't leave fossils. You know, just the easiest question to ever try to answer. Should be pretty cut and dry. (laughs) Probably going to be like, what, a two-minute episode? So please make sure that you subscribe to the So Curious Podcast everywhere you listen, and please leave us a five-star review so we can get out to more people. And please make sure you don't miss it. Tuesdays, be there. 5 a.m. sharp. (laughs) (laughs) This podcast is made in partnership with Radio Kismet, Philadelphia's premier podcast production studio. This podcast is produced by Amy Carson. The Franklin Institute's Director of Digital Editorial is Joy Matafusco. Dr. Jayatri Das is the Franklin Institute's Chief Bioscientist. And Aaron Armstrong runs Marketing, Communications, and Digital Media. Head of Operations is Christopher Plant. Our mixing engineer is Justin Berger. And our audio editor is Lauren DeLuca. Our graphic designer is Emma Seeger. And I'm the Bull Bay. And I'm Kirsten Michelle Sells. Thanks. Thank you. See ya.